Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to this edition of the Bully Pulpit. Today, we're focused on redistricting the science, the art, and the skullduggery. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warsaw Professor and Director of the Center for the Political Future at USC. I'm here with our co-director, Mike Murphy, and together we'll lead this discussion. Uh, We will leave 15 minutes, the last 15 minutes of the hour, for Q&A from our audience. Put your questions in the chat. Uh, Let me start by introducing our guests. Uh, Ben Ginsburg served as National Counsel to the Bush-Cheney presidential campaigns in 2000 and 2004. In 2012 and 2008, he served as national counsel for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. He's one of the great election law lawyers in America. Christian Gross is an associate professor of political science and public policy at USC, an academic director of the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for State and Global Policy. He's an expert on political reforms and voting rights, including independent redistricting commissions. Uh, He has also been conducting research about how best to improve voter access and voting rights based around community-engaged work. Uh, Michael Lee serves as senior counsel for the Brennan Center at NYU's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on redistricting, voting rights, and elections. He is the author of a widely cited blog on Texas redistricting and election law issues that the New York Times calls indispensable. I'm happy to welcome him today since I was once on the board of the Brennan Center. Uh, Gloria Molina, uh, we're proud that she's a fall 2021 fellow here at the Center for the Political Future. Uh, She was the first Latina ever elected to the California State Assembly, and she was the first Latina to join the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. She didn't join it. She waged a tough campaign to get on it, where she served for more than two decades. So let me start with this question. Every 10 years, we redistrict both the House of Representatives and state legislatures. Gerrymandering has historically been a feature of that process. How important will it be this year, and what impact is it likely to have on the final results? And we can start with anyone who'd like to start. Ben, you're up. Well, gerrymandering is uh, sort of wound into the process. And, uh, you know, one person's gerrymander is another person's fair map uh, in this, because it is such a partisan, really yeasty process that takes place. The gerrymanders uh, or other people's fair maps are going to be really, really important this cycle, given the narrow margins in the U.S. House of Representatives, and that'll be reflected on a number of state legislatures as well. Uh, In terms of gerrymanders, I mean, I I understand that there are all sorts of um, uh, so-called remedies in various states to deal with that phenomenon. Uh, I would just point out the, the map in Illinois that Democrats have done and the map in Texas that Republicans have done and just announced is two examples of pretty virulent gerrymanders uh, that have kind of let us off in this cycle. Uh, the other thing that I note is that um, political science seems to suggest that acute gerrymanders can account for 10 to 12 seats uh, in the U.S. House which goodness knows can be the majority in the current political environment. Uh, But there are 435 members, so it is still a relatively small percentage. Michael, you want to take that on? Uh, Sure. I I would agree with Ben that, you know, this is certainly a crime that both parties, when given the opportunity, will commit. And there's lots of history to suggest that um, in recent years, because Republicans have ended up um, controlling 
more political processes in the year that redistricting takes place. The Republicans commit more of the crimes, but I'm sure if the shoe were on the other foot, that Democrats um, would be equally opportunistic. And I fully expect that they will be opportunistic in states like Illinois and New York, in part because uh, they don't control many states. You know, Republicans have controlled the drawing of 187 congressional districts this cycle, Democrats only 75. And so uh, Democrats have an incentive to sort of maximize what they can do in those states. But I think it's important, as we talk about gerrymandering, not to lose sight of the fact that this is not just a D's versus R's story, right? That a lot of times, you know, whatever what you're seeing happen in Texas and elsewhere is accomplished at the expense of communities of color. Like uh, communities of color are essential tool, especially in the South, because, you know, in t- states like Texas and Georgia, Democrats still only get about 25, 28% of the white vote. And there aren't, you know, words, there aren't a lot of white Democrats um, even today. And the problem from a map drawer standpoint is that those white Democrats tend to live really close to white Republicans in the same neighborhoods and parts of towns and sometimes in the same houses. And so unless you're able to draw a line down somebody's bed, it can be hard to move the partisan dial too much just targeting white Democrats in the South, whereas because of residential segregation, it's easy to pack together or break apart communities of color in order to achieve a partisan effect. And, and you see that in the Texas maps, right? You know, like they're you know, a key part of it is drawing these urban, suburban, rural districts. Um, but in the urban and suburban areas, and then, you know, what what is happening is that communities of color, particularly the, the fast-growing Latino community, is really being vigorously split up, apart. And so it, it is very important to make sure that we tell, like, the, the race and ethnicity story in addition to sort of, like, the partisan story. Christian, you, you sent me a note uh, talking about the Texas map uh, which has been characterized as pack and crack. What does that mean, and what are the consequences? Yeah, I, I want to concur with Michael. I think that we focus a lot on partisan gerrymandering, but in this cycle, especially in the map that just came out in Texas, the voting rights of people of color are really kind of under fire. I think there's this is a racial gerrymander potentially in Texas as much as a partisan gerrymander. Um, what is cracking and what is packing? So usually what happens in racial gerrymandering is legislators, when they're redrawing the lines, will try to pack a lot of black, Latino, Asian American voters into one district. So you see that in parts of Texas in the Fort Worth area, you've got a district that's 80% plus um, uh, people of color. And then the surrounding districts are mostly white. And so you end up having these very white districts that cover most of the state. A majority of the proposed congressional districts in the state are white, even though a majority of the state of Texas is actually not white. And so the the cracking is the spreading out of minority voters in the rest of the districts. And the packing is putting uh, people of color into one district. And so I think that's definitely happening in Texas in the proposal that came out yesterday. Gloria, you want to weigh in on this? Then I'm going to turn this over to Mike. I, I know this is all about power and, and the reality and who controls the power, and it's very, very partisan. But let's go back to the basics of why we're reapportioning. We're reapportioning after a census. And when you look at the census numbers today, I, I, you have to look at throughout this country that the Latino community has been the largest growth community um, in, in, the, in the country and in states like Texas and throughout the Southwest. But even in the South, we have large numbers of Latinos um, that, and so there are seats, for example, in Texas, I understand there are going to be two additional seats because the growth of the Latino population was so large in Texas, there should be an opportunity for those congressional seats to go to a, quote, Latino opportunity district. In California, we're losing a uh, a congressional seat by virtue of our numbers. Um, but again, hopefully, if we're doing reapportionment fairly and equitably, uh, we should not lose it in the Latino community because the highest growth was in the Latino community. Now, again, I understand how it all works. and I was a part of the legislature and know how reapportionment works throughout the decades. But hopefully we're going to get into a process of better respecting. And we don't have the Voting Rights Act on our side anymore for the most part, even though they're supposed to follow basic rules and basic laws. I think we're going to many of these are going to go into the courts as they have in the past. And hopefully it's going to be judges. They're going to have to make determinations as to whether, in fact, these states are following the basic rules of reapportionment down the line. But I think it's really important to take into consideration 
not just the partisan aspect, but dealing with the population of growth in many, many of these states if you're going to have an equitable uh, and fair process. Again, I know maybe a little Pollyanna of me, but again, in the process, and for us as Latinos, uh, you know, we're getting ourselves ready to go and do battle in, in many of the southern states um, uh, and, and certainly here in California throughout. Uh, some of it is, while it's still controlled politically, we have committees that have been set up. And even the committees have already started in a backward situation. We don't have proportionately the right number of Latinos in many of those committees, particularly in the state of California. So it's going to be a battle for us. Um, there's going to have to be a lot of people talking about this and being advocates throughout. But you have to understand and respect the numbers. And if we're going to respect those numbers, there should be real opportunity to create, quote, Latino opportunity districts in many of our southwest, southwestern states, as well as in the south. Mike? Yeah, sure. And thank you, everybody, for joining. Um, let, let me just, I'll, I'll take a stab at the question, then maybe I'll move us to the next one. You know, redistricting is fascinating because it's such a, so many forces are at stake. On one hand, as we've discussed, you have the partisan interest. Uh, there's a district in California that the old Democratic Waxman Berman machine drew, so it was only contiguous at low tide. Uh, because there is supposed to be some community standard that your district is not 50 feet wide and 200 miles long. Uh, so you have kind of that inkblot problem of do you represent a community or two communities or not uh, against the partisan interest to create more districts. Then you get to the racial dimension. Increasingly, you see the politics of this should be a Latino district because of the Latino population, or this should be an African-American district, which is tricky because the African-American vote so highly um, correlates to Democratic you will see, and this is under the skullduggery part, occasionally in, in state legislatures, the Republicans will say, uh, you know, great, we can dilute some Democratic districts um, by making deals with identity groups that you create one more blank district to give us an advantage to maybe flip another district. So it's a very complicated uh, political equation. And we're going to talk a little bit later about these redistricting commissions and other uh, mechanics that try to get around that. I also just want to put a footnote up. It's important that we distinguish what we're talking about today, redistricting, with reapportionment, which is when we decide based on population which states gain congressional seats and lose them. Because a lot of the potential when you try to handicap the outcome, you, you may find more Republican states are gaining population and have Republicans controlling the process, like in Texas, where you get kind of a maximum partisan attempt uh, to mint some states. On the other hand, kind of the fascinating thing is that some of the states that are losing population, they're, they're getting smaller, but they're becoming bluer. So while the, the local politicians in a blue state, if they're Democrat, the first thing they try to do is wipe out a Democratic, excuse me, wipe out a Republican district and have some success. Keep an eye on Adam Kinzinger, a courageous Republican from Illinois, uh, who's is probably going to be pu punished for that uh, by partisan redistricting? I'll probably wipe them out. But the blue states are becoming bluer, which gives them more opportunity for the remaining Republican seats to put them in more of a threat. So it's a hard thing to handicap. But to the question, I think most people think the Republicans are going to be advantaged by at least two seats uh, in the in the midterm elections based on redistricting. But again, as Gloria says, the courts get involved when the lines get aggressive. So a question for the panel. There's been a long, and this kind of dovetails with what we were talking about, about minority seats. There's been a long time tendency to concentrate minority groups in specific districts so their votes don't affect the outcome in neighboring ones. Again, on the other hand, some minority groups will argue in favor of that because it gives them an advantage to win the primary and have a, a, a member from that uh, constituency uh, ultimately represent the district. Uh, Representative Jim Clyburn is talking about changing that using South Carolina, where he has great experience as a particular example. Is there any prospect, either through legislatures or through the courts, that minority voters will be more evenly distributed this year? Uh, and Christian, Texas just released their map. We've been discussing it. Uh, and you explained the pack and rack thing. You think that'll be, I'll start with you. Do you think that might drive legislative changes or action in the courts? Then maybe we'll go to Ben. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think, I mean, going to the, the Clyburn question, right? There's, so there's, I think, six districts in South Carolina. This is something I wrote a book about a while ago, um, specifically with South Carolina as a case. His district was initially packed pretty heavily to be black majority when no black members of Congress had ever been elected since the Reconstruction era in South Carolina. And so it was needed initially in the 1990s to have a very high black population to get a black member of Congress elected. Um, but now, as things have moved forward over the decades, it's not clear that you need a 60, 65 percent black population to get elected as a black member of Congress in South Carolina. You could probably get elected in a 45, 47, 50 percent black district voting age population. And South Carolina has about one third of its state is African-American um, with six districts. It should probably have two black uh, ability to elect districts, not one, which it has right now. Right. So I think the, the, the trade off between larger black populations, Latino populations, Asian-American populations in a district does take voters away from surrounding districts that are then more white. That could actually lead to an aggregate dilution to minority voting power. But if you go down too low, you end up with um, primarily white members of Congress getting elected or white state legislators, and then that would be in violation of um, voting rights, right? So the voting rights section five was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court uh, about a decade ago, but there's still section two of the Voting Rights Act, and that does cover all of this. You cannot dilute the power for minorities to have a right to um, access the ballot via redistricting. And so that means you can't pack and you can't crack. And so as we think about redistricting, um, this decade and going forward, what's that number that's needed? I think if you look at Texas, they're packing way too much in some of those districts, and then they're also cracking in some districts. And then in places like South Carolina, it might be time to think about, you know, what's the, what is the right level of um, voting power for African Americans? And the reason this is important is that when the Voting Rights Act was passed initially, everyone had the right to vote suddenly in South Carolina. And then what happened? The districts were redrawn so that white voters were in the majority in every single district, right? So the reason that, that we think about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is because of the, the redistricting has been used to dilute the power of uh, voters of color. And then it leads to lots and lots of litigation. So I think there will probably be a lot of litigation in the cycle. Ben, do you want to pick up there on, on kind of forecasting what the legal action might be over the next few years on this? I think whether there's any prospect of change through laws will depend very much on a state-by-state -state basis, uh, right? It's really hard to come up yeah. with a monolithic answer for what's going to happen to minority communities, uh, especially in light of the recent Supreme Court rulings in which I think it is less likely that federal courts will, um, will intervene. So I suspect Democrats trying to help themselves will go when possible in the state to the state courts uh, and look at, at the Pennsylvania uh, example from the past decade. Ben, explain that Pennsylvania example, because I think it's really intriguing what happened there. The Pennsylvania legislature uh, came up with a map that um, was uh, a, a very successful Republican gerrymander, and I can't remember what the split of the delegation was, but in what essentially is a 50-50 state, Republicans had at least two-thirds of the congressional delegation. Uh, I can't remember if there were efforts to take that map to federal court, but the Democrats did take it to state court, and it went up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which uh, not like all state Supreme Courts, is elected. So the, the justices there had all run for office themselves. It was a 5-2 Democratic majority on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And lo and behold, their remedy was a map that was much more favorable to the Democrats uh, and more or less in line with the overall makeup of the state. But I think it's, uh, it, it will serve as an example for this cycle in, in uh, aggrieved parties going to state courts where they can, as opposed to, to federal courts. It's also, to answer your question, a little bit of history is, uh, is helpful. The most successful comprehensive gerrymander was what Democrats managed to do uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s, 40 straight years of Democratic control in Congress. And by God, that was a strong political gerrymander. 
Um, what broke up the gerrymander was the passage of the Voting Rights Act, a bipartisan bill driven by Democrats. But that essentially changed the dynamic of redistricting. And I always think the food fight analogy is the best way to explain it. So before the Voting Rights Act, basically the Democrats drew pizza pie slices. So there would be an urban core that was generally racial minorities, and that urban core would be sliced uh, to, to go out to elect basically um, white Democrat liberals in the suburbs. And what the Voting Rights Act said was that you had to keep minority communities intact, that you couldn't dilute them, so that uh, districting became much more donuts as opposed to pizza pie slices, so that there were concentric circles. And that actually benefited the groups who were historically numerical minorities. And that was African-Americans, that was Latinos, and that was Republicans. And so there was a common cause in the 1990s redistricting, believe it or not, between Republicans and racial minority groups. It succeeded in doubling the number of African-American and Latino representatives in Congress. Now, what Jim Clyburn and others have found over the last, uh, since, since the, the 90s, is that some of those racial minority districts do not need 65% minority population win. And so what the question recognizes is that kind of political evolution, that if you keep racial minority groups too concentrated in districts, then that takes away from democratic majorities. So that essentially is what you're seeing playing out with the populations uh, in districts. W what that means this cycle, given the Supreme Court rulings, is I think quite an open question, but goodness knows there will be lots of lit uh, litigation. Michael or Gloria, you want to chime in on this one at all? Again, I look at it as an activist and, and as elected official through a very Latino lens on, on this whole issue of reapportionment and redistricting. The biggest challenge for us as Latinos, even as, as we've grown in population and as an advocate, certainly the issue of growth has been for Latinos and for minorities has been in the inner city and, uh, and, and in our big, big cities. And so the challenge as we look to drawing the lines or have lines is we're going to have to be very concerned as to how we deal with um, the African-American community and the Asian community in the inner city in a, in a manner to be fair and, and be effective because we've all kind of grown in the inner city. And it's going to be a real challenge for us as well um, as we look at city council seats and, and again, commissioners or board of supervisor seats. So those are going to be important issues. But I, again, it's hard to tell in all of the states how that's all going to work. But when you look at the number, at least for minorities or, again, for Latinos, most of the growth has been in, in the large cities. And so the challenge for us is going to be as to how do you create seats so that you're equitable in many instances for presently sitting um, members of not just Congress, but city council and others that are African-Americans and they become in the, in the city have become more and more Latino. And so those are going to be very challenging issues for us as we look at this through the Latino lens. I think, um, the issue, Mike, that you you raised about um, these historically majority black districts and others um, is an important one and, and 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 an interesting one. But you know, in many places of the country, I also think that it's in some ways becoming an issue that is increasingly moot. And that is because you know, like the Voting Rights Act was designed for like a really starkly segregated world that was black and white. I mean, literally black and white, right? That wasn't multiracial in the way that we are today. And it wasn't designed, and it was designed for a world where people were basically segregated into district-sized units and were not segregated in district-sized units anymore. Increasingly, people of color, most people of color in the metro areas now live in the suburbs, not in the cities. And in the suburbs, 
um, you know, there's a lot of natural competition that sort of arises, you know, like in Fort Bend County outside of Houston, right? It's one of the most diverse suburban counties in the country. You go there and there's like a Cajun restaurants that, that um, serve tamales during Christmas time and, and have pho on the menu, right? And, and so, you know, it, it is a very diverse um, area. And if you just sort of drew natural districts that kept communities together, there would be a lot of, um, you know, multiracial coalitions coming together because you have to have a multiracial coalition to elect. Um, but the challenge is um, in those areas and, you know, minority power, that's kind of the future in a lot of ways of minority power outside of the, the urban cores. And, you know, how to protect that minority power is going to be hard because they're, they're, the Voting Rights Act doesn't as well apply that, right? I mean, it's, it's more ambiguous. It's a little bit harder to draw like districts that comply with all the requirements of law. Um, and that's really where you're seeing a lot of these districts potentially dismantled places like the suburbs, you know, like Gwinnett County, Georgia was 90% white in 1990. It's 35% white today. Fort Bend County, which I just mentioned, was 90% white in 1990. It's 30% white today, right? You know, like Sugar Line, Texas, where Tom DeLay is from, is 40% Asian, right? And so figuring out how to have a legal framework that that protects the voices of communities of color in these increasingly diverse suburbs, I think is going to be the challenge. And it's not going to be through trying to draw like, you know, you know, even 50% black districts or 50% Asian districts. It's going to be figuring out how to protect multiracial districts. Can we talk a little bit about independent redistricting commissions? We have one here in California. Uh, and in a lot of states, they have the decision-making power. In other states, it's a joint function of the commissions in the state legislatures. Are these independent commissions really independent? Do they result in fair apportionment? Or is the result a mixed bag, depending on what state you're talking about? Who wants to, t- I'll say mixed bag, but <laughs> somebody can argue with me. Iowa is great. They're the gold standard, um, <laughs> but they don't have some of these issues that more diverse states do uh, as, as far as counterbalancing it. But who, who thinks it's fantastic? And we, we, the, well, I, I think it depends on how you define a commission, right? I mean, there are. What's the worst? Like, New Jersey legend. New oh, Jersey. Like the, the, New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, New Jersey. In everything, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. New Jersey is up there. But, you know, like, yeah, Ohio. <laughs> it's the first think, cycle. You can't condemn it quite yet. I, well, so there are bipartisan commissions, right, that really are still closely tied to the political process where people have a lot of, you know, sometimes they're legislators themselves or or, or directly appointed by people. You appoint your brother-in-law, your chief of staff, right? Um and then there are the more independent commissions like California, where you have to like you have to write five essays if you want to be on the California Commission. You have to go before an interview before three auditors, right? It's a ninety-minute interview. It's all you know, and and lawmakers aren't as directly involved in selecting people. And you know, the data I think is still limited. Like California, its commission has drawn one set of maps, so that's a data point, not a trend, right? Um, Arizona's commission has been in operation slightly longer, and you know, I think you know the first round everybody was happy. The second round there was a little bit more dissent. Um, but w- what we've seen in these states is that they don't draw wildly gerrymandered maps, right? I mean, they don't, you know, you could quibble around whether they're perfect or not, but they don't draw wild, they don't draw like a 13-5 map in Pennsylvania or a 10-3 map in, in North Carolina, right? And, and things like that. Um, you know, there's a much greater emphasis on trying to get it right. And so I think, I do think like there's evidence that that works. And when you look at like some of the, you know, the shenanigans that go on, you know, both in terms of incumbent protection and also in terms of like grabbing a disproportionate number of seats elsewhere, I, I do think that they, there can be a fairer process. That said, um, redistricting reform is not one size fits all. You know, you can do simply breaking up the one party monopoly in some way, like having a supermajority requirement requiring a certain level of support from the minority party. Um, that would by itself would go a long way into having fairer processes. The, this Gerrymandering really occurs because we allow one party to control the whole process, and unfortunately, most states are under single-party control now. Christian, you were, you were, uh, or Governor Schwarzenegger was the person who gave us this independent redistricting commission, put it on the ballot, and it passed. Do uh, you think it works here? Yeah, I, I think it works really well in California, and there's a couple different reasons, right? So I want to I want to preface it with a commission does not remove politics from the process of redrawing lines. It just opens up the process to a lot more players than a handful of legislators in a state legislature, right? It's it's much harder to be able to dominate in in a commission when there's so many different people, right? In California, you have to apply, as Michael talked about, you have to um, have balance across. 
partisan. Uh, uh, you have to have the equal number of Republicans and Democrats. You have to have diversity, racial, ethnic, and gender. There's periods for public comment. There's all sorts of process components that are built in that I think, regardless of even what the outcome is, um, gives people more um, more uh, approval of it. So I read a paper with a graduate student, Matthew Nelson, here at USC, where we did a survey of Californians and we asked them, what do you think of the redistricting process? We asked them what happens if legislators draw their own lines, what happens if the commission draws the lines, and we explain that it's equal Republicans, Democrats, and then almost equal independents, and then not. And there's much more legitimacy in how people in the survey respond when the commission draws the line. So even if the, the outcomes aren't what people want, the process itself is what's important, right? And then, you know, Mike, you asked, like, what's a bad example of a commission? Ohio has a new commission this year that had a lot of promise, but the state legislative map was was passed on a 5-2 Republican-Democratic vote. That's a, It's effectively one of these politician commissions and not an independent commission. So I'll kind of contrast that politician commission in a place like New Jersey or Ohio to California, where California does work because there's just different people from different party backgrounds and other backgrounds from across the state and otherwise who are drawing the map. Laura, you were in the assembly under the old system when, when basically I think Michael Berman, Howard Berman's brother, did the reapportionment and it was designed primarily to protect incumbents. Which system do you like? Well, it was to protect the incumbents. And, of course, um, that was the first thing everybody took care of, uh, which unfortunate. I think a commission is better. I think it provides a more opportunity for fairness. But let's also talk about a commission. Um, there should be equitable participation. And when you look at California, when they did the drawing or their first drawing of the first six members, they were all white. And so, again, then it was incumbent upon those so-called commissioners to now equalize the rest of it. And I think at the end of the day, um, there should be at least six Latino members of that commission if you look at the demographics, but that's not the case. I think there's one for sure and potentially two. I don't know exactly. I don't think there's six. No. How many How many are there, Christian? <laughs> there's, I was, so in the initial draw, there were a number of Asian American and white and black members who were chosen. Um, and in fact, it was a, a the, it was a multiracial group that were not Latinos who were randomly drawn as part of the random draw. The, the law in California requires that ethnicity and race be considered in the selection of the final group. And then almost all of the final group, I think five, were Latino members who were chosen, who currently are on the 14-member commission. Well, we'll see as that, as that process. I think that that, that – but- Again, a commission process, and we're doing it at a local level as well. I think it's much fairer. I was involved in the state legislature then, but also involved with the Board of Supervisors when we did our drawing then. And, of course, everybody just protects their own area. They aren't willing to move anything in any direction. It is very, very much incumbent protection instead of really trying to create an equitable process for the larger good. Can I just do one little shout out, though, to USC political science graduate, Sarah Sadwani, on the redistricting commission. Um, so we've got a USC oh, member of the redistricting commission, <laughs> former student. <laughs> oh, well, then UCLA is going to be moved to the Channel Islands. <laughs> just one point about about commissions, maybe two. Um, the first is, is that if you have commissions that do not include political folks, it gives uh, much more power to the staffs involved. And holding up California, a very one-party blue state, is an example of something that would play elsewhere in the country. I think um, not taking into account some, some other jurisdictions. And again, what a staff can do to a commission map. Yeah, am I wrong that Iowa is kind of the gold standard, though they're a lot less purple or swing state than they used to be? They're, they're wheeling around to be more reliably red. But what, what would be, an, if, if I'm wrong, tell me, but what is another state that's a real best practices swing state where you have both parties fighting it out so the redistricting process has real stakes uh, for partisan success or failure, so they both try their worst skullduggery? but the, the commission polices it well. I'm interested to see how Colorado goes. Colorado's got a commission for the first time this year. Michigan has a commission, an independent commission for the first time this year. I'm not, I'm not saying they're good, the best practices, but I think they're two states to watch and see how it goes. 
It, it, it's a data. It, I mean, all of this is a data point. It's not a trend. Yet. Yeah, the first Michigan preliminary map I saw confused me a little. So maybe it wasn't indeed a citizens commission because it looked like West Michigan was getting whacked and the depopulation is still in Southeast Michigan. So I, I, but they haven't released their final one. If you'll recall the, the first California commission map back in 2011 also got really whacked, right? I mean, like, it, you know, this is an iterative process and it's good that you get to see like all of this, like, you know, like, whereas in Texas, we got um, maps, you know, on Saturday and then like there's a hearing the next week and the night before, like at 9 p.m. Texas time, they released more maps, right? That they then wanted people to talk about at the hearing, like the one hearing that was going to happen, right? As opposed to about 42 hearings or whatever that the California commission had. The census data was delayed this year as a result of the COVID crisis. Is that going to affect redistricting? How has it affected redistricting? But ultimately, will it matter much or not at all? Well, I think you're already seeing states try to use it as an excuse, right? I mean, I think that that's one way. And then, you know, like in Texas, they said we would have loved to have gone around the state and had lots of testimony, but COVID interfered, which is a little bit weird because the Texas legislature also is requiring all testimony to be in person in Austin, um, because apparently there is no COVID crisis that requires you from, from getting to Austin and then testifying in person in, in, in the Texas legislature. But they couldn't go around the state and hear public testimony because of COVID. I think the other thing that may play out is that redistricting is much later this year than, than normally, and that will leave less time for litigation. And the reality is litigation is important to getting fair maps in many states. And probably more maps mid-decade because of litigation that plays out. So we may have more disruption. So what may happen is the districts will be drawn, the cases will be filed, they can't be settled in time for 2022. But maybe then things, they will be settled for 2024, and you'll have to get new maps. Well, given the malapportionment of the current districts, there'll have to be new maps in every state. But they are going to be done much more quickly and, and probably less carefully, and the litigation will be ongoing beyond 2022. So do you think the census is plays a big role this year, or was that a lot of noise? I mean... President Trump tried to get the census figures out before he left office, tried to exclude people who weren't citizens. Uh, all of that failed, but the census was delayed. Well, I have a question for the other panelists, actually, that I think may be the ticking time bomb of the census, which is how accurate do we think it is? And I think that varies from state to state because there were some states that spent a lot of money to get their numbers up in a census, and others, I think like Texas, that did not, so that it is conceivable that there is an undercount uh, in a number of states, especially of Latinos. Those are all people who could conceivably register to vote over the course of the decade. So this is the, you know, kind of the equivalent of massive new communities springing up that will distort the current lines that go into place. And the second question and point for folks who are drawing maps is the census added uh, a feature to keep individual identities anonymous so that the numbers are less precise. So for people trying to draw 374 uh, Phil Burton uh, districts, the information's not quite as pinpoint accurate. And so that may uh, affect some districts on the edge of gerrymandering. Anybody else have a take on this? The latter point, Ben, I think like this differential privacy has been introduced by the census this year. This is, I mean, this is redistricting, right? We've already gotten into redistricting. Now we're into differential privacy, right? <laughs> like the, this is really getting into the weeds of redistricting. But the, there is a new way of measuring people. From what I understand, the, the, the new measurement is less of a problem the higher aggregation levels you go. So at the congressional level, large populations, it's not going to make a huge difference, but maybe in very small districts in states that don't have a lot of um, people within each district, the differential privacy in particular could be something, you know, to think about or be concerned about. Um, I'm always worried about counts and, you know, the census is never exactly right. There's lots of people who are undercounted um, and that's just, just the best numbers that we have every decade. And I'm not sure about this year. 
I, I would expect that there would be litigation over this, right? Because we're Americans and we litigate over everything and, and redistricting is about political power. And so, you know, and I think those fights will be different across the country and they, they actually may be inconsistent with one another. Like people may be claiming things that sort of are inconsistent. Um, but I think, you know, I think many people have concerns, some legitimate, some, you know, more, you know, politically driven. But I think, you know, like I would expect in addition to redistricting fights uh, over the next few years, some fights over the census. Mike, you want to take this? We have a bunch of audience questions now. You want to? I'll throw it to them in a minute, but I, I just have one. As a practical politician, I have one quick question because all politicians love redistricting politics because it's mostly about how do you screw the other side out of a seat or two. Um, I remember a member of Congress back in Michigan and Governor Engler and I tried to figure out how to redistrict into Canada. Uh, and the Democrats are very, very good at it, too. But does anybody in the real world care? Or is this just a squabbling thing? Because they're going to vote the blue team or they're going to vote the red team or they're a swing voter. And they whether or not the line is four blocks over or not, as long as my blue governor did the right thing and wiped out one of those damn red Republicans or vice versa in Texas. Does anybody vote on this? Anybody care about it? And then quickly, which is the easy part of the question, why should they? I certainly think the amount of redistricting reform that you saw last decade was a testament to the the, the response to the, the 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 maps that you saw pass that were wildly gerrymandered. You know, like the twelve four map in Ohio, thirteen five map in Pennsylvania. It really sort of did catalyze a lot of reform. And and you you talk to people in Michigan and Ohio who were involved in efforts to reform the process. You know, people in Michigan will say that they went door to door and knocked on in very mixed partisan neighborhoods, knocked on Democratic doors, knocked on Republican doors. Everyone was ready to sign when they said we're taking power out of the hands of politicians. Um, so, and the polling also shows that like 10 or 15 years ago, you talked about redistricting or gerrymandering, like it didn't move the polls at all. Now it does. And so I, I do think like it is an issue that at least some voters, particularly in badly gerrymandered states, um, do respond to. And it's an issue that resonates, you know, it's one of the most popular things in like things like the Freedom to Vote Act. When you talk about like what it does, like, you know, people are like automatic voter registration, yeah. And gerrymandering, they're like, woo, you know, and so I, I do think like, you know, it is increasingly an issue of resonance to people. If you ask, if you ask people the question of do you like gerrymandering, uh, the answer to that is no. But I don't necessarily know of an election where a candidate has won or lost because of his or her actions on redistricting. So I don't think it comes down to a ballot box issue on individual campaigns. I will say that I did a family focus group on this in the 1990s, and I got the most eye rolls ever from my two kids when I insisted on naming the family pooch gerrymander. So yeah, back where I'm from on the east side of Detroit, they think it's a Scottish dance. Uh, But as (laughs) Michael says, there, my dad was one of them out there bothering people on their door trying to uh, pass the reform. So maybe maybe it's having an awakening. But if you can get a nonpartisan commission on a ballot in states where you can do initiatives, for example, I think it probably does get overwhelming support from people. I mean, Christian, how, how big was the vote in, in uh, California on this issue? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, I don't recall the exact amount, but you're exactly right. right? So, like, Governor Schwarzenegger, one of the things that he, one of the things he ran on during the recall and then his reelection was, you know, reform that was bipartisan. And so he was a big proponent of this and he ended up having a coalition that was kind of unique of common cause and all sorts of various advocacy groups on the left and the right, Charles Munger Jr., right? People who aren't always working together um, to pass it. And it didn't pass at first, right? It was something that was kind of hard to explain to voters. And the first couple of times it, it reached some opposition, but eventually it did pass first for the state legislature and then for Congress. And then it went from there. You know, Michigan adopted a very similar commission to what California uses. Colorado has adopted a commission recently. Arizona had a commission earlier. That's a little bit different, but these these things are pretty popular. And it seems like almost every state where there is an initiative, commissions have been passed or some form of commissions because commissions were going to be passed um, in, in states where that could happen. Interestingly, I found, and I was involved with Arnold as his consultant, it's... States that are already pretty safely in one party, the polls are more comfortable with it uh, because they think they've already won. And the other party, we got nothing to lose. We're so behind. You know, it's the swing states where redistricting stakes are so big 
where people want to hang on to the present system, the pulse, I mean, the people who run it, because they, they understand it. You know, they don't love it, but they understand it. So it's one of these things that, uh, but I, I do think the trend is moving toward it. Well, should we go to questions? Yeah, let's from go. Our esteemed uh, viewers. Question number one is from Anonymous. Uh, nice try, Bob. How would passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act change the calculus of redistricting? I'm not sure it would. Yeah, it would make it would would make several changes. Um, you know, it would put some states back under preclearance, which is important. Um, it also does, um, you know, um, do a number of changes. For example, it, it resolves. It makes clear that minority coalition districts are protected under the Voting Rights Act and can be asserted. You know, that's most circuits already say that they can be the sixth circuit disagrees but you know that that would be overruled and so you know there are key changes there i would say the more important bill perhaps is the freedom to vote act which um is in some ways a companion of the successor to the for the people act um that would ban partisan gerrymandering in congressional redistricting uh by statute it would strengthen protections for communities of color in redistricting and and, and make it would change significantly change how redistricting cases get litigated. You know, like gerrymandering cases could only be brought in Washington D.C. The appeals wouldn't be directly to the Supreme Court; they would be to the Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit. Um, so there are a number of changes in the in the process of redistricting. It'd be harder for courts to block, you know, remedial maps and things like that. Um, all of which sometimes happens today. So that's Joe Manchin's bill, by the way. Uh, but I don't see much prospect of it passing because you got to get 60 votes you've got to overcome a filibuster so well, unless there's a carve out on the filibuster for voting rights i don't see how it passes well everything is always impossible in washington until they figure something out you'll recall like the <laughs> That's true. The, the ending the ending of the filibuster on um you know judges like like people went to work that morning not knowing that it was going to happen and then like they got announced by the then majority leader that they were going to do that and and it was done right and so like you know things can happen very fast i'm not predicting that it will in this case but you know they they could so we'll we'll have to see but the there's still time for it to pass we'll see whether they get it done or not i heard a hilarious joke about a game show host running for president ha that can't happen all right question two from diane wallace i participated in the california commission meetings in west la and the south bay 10 years ago the participating community members were abundantly present and represented the diversity of LA. Are there any other states that have an abundance of participation and input from community members? I mean, yeah, that's that's happening in other commission states, right? So, um, I, in my spare time, I, I watch commission meetings while I'm while I'm working on my computer. Um, you know, <laughs> Colorado had hundreds of people submit public comments to their commission over the last several weeks. Um, you know, in Ohio, where there is a politician commission, a bunch of people showed up at meetings, even though there weren't a lot of them. So I think that you're seeing that in um, in different states where people are submitting, you know, details about what community matters to them what geography matters to them in, in ways that the, the commission process, and you could have this with the legislative process too, as long as you have time to let people come and talk and say what's important to them and why certain geography should be retained and protected, that's a really good part of the process. So I think kudos to you for taking part in that last time. Well, I mean, a legislature uh, that does not, in a state that does not have a commission is always well advised, Texas notwithstanding, to have a lot of public hearings and to let people express their views and uh, submit maps. I mean, the software is now plentifully available so people can submit maps. And the, the many a legislature believes that it map, its maps will stand up to court scrutiny if they've had a robust public hearing process. They're going to do what they ultimately want to do, but you certainly want to see the ideas there. Okay, I'm delighted to say we have a skullduggery question. Question number three from Aria Cobian. Even with public commissions, does the persistence of, quote, shadow processes that run parallel to these commissions make the idea of a nonpartisan objective redistricting effort moot? I, I would say it makes it moot, but, you know, I do... I do agree, like, whenever you have any system, right, that people will try to figure out a way to, to game it, right, to use, like, the rules that are in place or the process that is in place strategically. And, you know, like, you know, 
you know, when when the Supreme Court required districts be evenly populated, you know, for a while that helped end like a lot of like gerrymandering, right? You know, because like suddenly just you couldn't have a district that had, you know, 500 people in another district that had 15,000 people, right? But over time, people have sort of figured out how to use those things strategically. It, there still are constraints, but, you know, like I, I do think there's so much at stake in redistricting that, that um, you know, there's a need for constant vigilance, as it were. So, um, but, you know, the, the reality is that commissions are much more public. They're much more, you know, they, they, you know, they, there's much more effort to insulate. And it really, the genius of a, an independent commission is not that it has like the perfect people, right. But, it, but that it actually has like checks and balances. Like in California, you need Democrats, Republicans, and independents to be able to pass a map. Democrats can't team up with independents to screw Republicans or anything like that. You need some Republicans. And so, you know, like the, the number of checks and balances is what, what really makes commissions work well. Gloria, in the old days, before we had the commission in California, was there much public input into these maps, or did they just come out of an <laughs> incumbent protection system that actually worked in favor of Republicans? Yeah. In the legislature, that wasn't the case. They had some hearings, but they were very superficial, even field hearings. Really, it all happened behind closed door in the legislature. So even whatever input was being provided, it really wasn't looked upon at all because at that time it was really done by a couple of people and behind the scenes. Now, in the on a local level, on city council and on board of supervisors, which I served on, there was much more direct input. And I think that people, particularly with communities of interest, and there there were, you know, that was a part of the equation when people came together um, and expressed themselves in that way. And so. That did have an impact from time to time, besides minority participation and so on. So there was much more attention at a local level. Um, I don't know if maybe because there's more scrutiny at a local level or what. But in the, in the state legislature, that wasn't the case. They had some hearings and they did some field work. But honestly, uh, it was all done behind the scenes. I mean, legislators themselves didn't know what district they were going to land in <laughs> until, until that map was made public. <laughs> no, it was all done at table six at Frank Banks. <laughs> Believe me, on a cocktail napkin. Okay, this is question five from Anonymous again, or a different Anonymous. Democrats are likely to lose the House of Representatives for many reasons. Is there any scenario involving redistricting after the census that can negate some of the Republican advantages and help the Democrats retain the House? Okay, that is. That is from the mirror image of Donald Trump. Can we use some kind of legislation to undo the election uh, retroactively? <laughs> ben, I'm sure you've thought about that. What do you say? Uh, well, uh, I, I mean, I, I think the question goes to litigation to reverse maps. Uh, mid-decade redistricting is frowned upon. So if there's a switch in political power in a state, it's still unlikely to work that way. But, you know challenge a map and that's potentially the way you reverse the political results pennsylvania being the example i think that republicans will get an advantage out of this redistricting process i don't think it will be as big as people thought six or eight months ago but they will get an advantage but what's really going to play the decisive role in the midterms in my view is how biden and the democratic congress are doing I mean, if they have a train wreck this week on infrastructure and reconciliation, uh, and both of those bills go down, uh, I think it could be a, a very difficult Democratic year. If, on the other hand, uh, some, some, some form of both of those bills pass, the bipartisan infrastructure, we know the form, but if some form of reconciliation passes, COVID is under control and the economy is doing very well, Democrats might have a better chance. Uh, redistricting doesn't determine the outcome, but it can help to shape the outcome. At least that's my view. No, I agree. It, it is. And the, definitely the tailwinds are with the GOP. We'll see what happens. This is a huge week to see what happens. So here's a question from Valerie Brant Wilson, which is a good one. Section two of the Voter Rights Act of 196, of the Voter Rights Act of 1965 says that minorities should have representatives that look like them. If I understood one of the presenters, it would be better not to try to stack the black vote for that purpose. 
We have never had a black representative in this congressional district on the Space Coast in Florida. How can we get a representative who comes from the minority community since our state legislature is GOP controlled? Which gets to the thing, if you're a political entrepreneur and you're of color, you may like stacking because it will give you an advantage in your district to beat the other five white candidates in the primary. But anyway, what what do we do? What's the question? And who talked about the stacking issue? I think, Christian, was it you? Yes. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. I mean, so I think I think that um, I want to go back to a couple of things that came up earlier about increasing multiracial and multiethnic America. Right. And so I, I think that there's still a lot of racially polarized voting. That's what Section two of the Voting Rights Act is supposed to protect against so that minority voters who vote together and in contrast to white voters can still get a candidate of choice elected. Um, I think that that happens around the country, but with the multiracial, multiethnic change in the country, we have to be looking more at can groups vote together to elect a black member of Congress or a Latino member of Congress or an Asian member of Congress. Um, also, there's sometimes crossover white voting that I think is happening in certain suburban areas and urban areas that maybe wasn't quite the case, depending on the state. Um, but in Florida, just to talk about Florida, you know, a lot of people don't know, Florida has a, has a law that's for fair districts that requires that the state legislature not consider partisan gerrymandering. Now that didn't go as well as you might have hoped in the last decade. Um, there is a lot of litigation around that, but um, but Florida does actually have a law that's supposed to constrain the state legislature to consider um, not doing as much partisan gerrymandering and also um, still does need to consider those voting rights considerations. So, I mean, one thing I would do if you're living in Florida and that's something that's important to you, I would write your I would write your state legislature. I would go to hearings. I would submit maps. I would use Dave's redistricting software or other uh, applications that are available on the internet and submit your own maps and make those suggestions. That Florida law was written by the same legislature who wrote the law that Oreo cookies shouldn't be eaten by seven year olds. It's a very hard one to. It, it's not a law. It was an amendment to the state constitution right. yeah. passed by popular vote. If Florida got those standards in that the Democrats wanted and the state stayed every bit as Republican as it was before, um, which goes to one of the underlying phenomenons demographically in the country that impacts redistricting, which is over the last 50 years, there's been a big sort of book by a demographer from Texas named Bill Bishop points it out. There's been a big sort where we live more and more with people like ourselves. Communities are more homogeneous. That impacts redistricting because dividing up communities to create political outcomes means the districts uh, get less and less compact. And so you do have tension between wanting to preserve communities, wanting to create competitive districts, uh, that uh, it gets more and more extreme every decade. I'll just say on Florida, so, I mean, you said there's a Democratic change to the Constitution. It was it was passed by over 60% of the voters. And we, we all know Florida is a 51-49 state. That, that constitutional change was supported by a pretty wide swath of the Florida public. Um, and the legislature, I think, did some different things and didn't really follow the, the constitutional provisions that were passed by ballot initiative. Nonetheless, Republican, Republicans ended up controlling the state legislature and all the statewide constitutional offices in Florida. Because oh, sure. We were talking about earlier that people will vote for redistricting commissions, but that doesn't impact individual votes for candidates. There is one statewide, one statewide office in Florida that is controlled by a Democrat. That's Nikki Freed, the agriculture commissioner, who's, who's now running for governor. Against Charlie Crist. Yeah, correct. One out of six, right? And, and and just a coda on that, like the the maps were struck down in in litigation last decade and, and partially redrawn, right? In other words, like yes, the republic, you know, Florida is a Republican leaning state. It's not surprising that it produces a Republican legislature at all. I mean, you would you would expect that you. But, you know, it, it, it isn't Republican to the extent that the maps were drawn, just like, you know, Ohio, like Republic, Ohio is a Republican leading state. But, you know, the maps that were passed uh, a few weeks ago create a Republican supermajority of the legislature and, Repu- you know, as uh, Republican as Ohio is, it's not a supermajority Republican state. And that's really what the, the, the some of the fights are about. 
Okay, we're going to come back with charts, graphs, and more mathematical equations for our sequel to this, but we haven't scheduled it yet. In the meantime, please mark your calendar for October 5th when the great Gloria Molina is going to come uh, and do the next one of these where she will unpack the impact of the mighty Hispanic electorate. So you're not going to miss that. Details on the website again. That will be on Tuesday, October 5th. Thank you, everybody, for participating. Bob, you want to land the plane here? Yeah, I just want to thank our panelists. I mean, this was a terrific panel. It was intellectually interesting. It was provocative. It was civil, even though I think we have some areas of disagreement. So I want to thank everybody. I want to thank our audience, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.